Thank you, Pastor John. And I want to say thank you um, to all of our family here for allowing me to come here this afternoon and share God's Word and what the Lord has wants us to know today. And uh, before we read the Scripture, I just want to remind us that so often we take God's Word for granted. It sits on our shelf. We have multiple copies at home. And we forget sometimes that when we read this, we are reading the very Word of the Almighty God. So as we hear His Word this morning, let that soak in and allow Him to speak to your heart. Because it's His Word. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's not ours. Even as a church, it's His Word that He has given to us. So as we hear His Word this morning, allow Him to bless your heart. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, you are a great God, and we love you, though oftentimes we may wrestle showing you that. We praise you that you have what is best in mind for us, and we praise you that though we may not understand you completely, we can trust you completely. We thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that you would give it to us each and every day afresh to stand firm for you in a world that is so mixed up. We thank you for this time today. Speak to our hearts. Speak through me, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, there's a lot of amazing facts about the human body, right? When you stop and consider it, depending on your heart rate, the average human heart beats about 100,000 times a day, pumping 2,000 gallons of blood through your body each and every day. My favorite is, is that your body will produce enough saliva to fill two bathtubs a year. And your blood vessels, if you were able to take them out and put them end to end, would circle the globe over 60,000 miles. The average human adult has over 2,000 taste buds just on your tongue. Your body has more than 600 muscles, and the smallest bone in your body is found in your ear, of all places. Every second, get this, every second, your body produces 25 million new cells. 25 million new cells are produced every second. That means in 15 seconds, you will have produced more cells than there are people in the United States. In 15 seconds. Our bodies are an autonomously functioning masterpiece of engineering. It's a powerhouse producing energy. We produce 
up to 100 watts of power in rest and over 2,000 watts of power when we're energized. Basically, on the average, you can generate enough energy to run your refrigerator. And even though medicine has been going on for years, modern medicine, even since this 18th century, there are still things that we are discovering about the human body. You know, our God is an amazing God and how he has created our bodies. And it's no wonder that God uses the image of the human body as a catalyst for our understanding the workings of his church. Now, the scripture identifies the church many different ways. We, we read about a building, a household, a priesthood, a people, his workmanship. But probably the most used description of the church is the body. And it's a body that uh, the image that Paul uses in many of his letters, and he uses that in our passage today. Now, Paul could have emphasized all kinds of things using the body as an example, but today, here in Ephesians 4, he begins with this bold statement for the necessity of maintaining unity. So we come to our first point here, that the body of Christ is unified by God himself. That wasn't me. <laughs> so the body of Christ is unified by God himself. I don't know if that was for emphasis or what, but <laughs> we see here in verse 3 that we are to, eager to be maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now think about how many parts are in your body right now. Okay? All functioning in a way that you are able to sit, read, listen, breathe, and even think all at the same time. And the minute I said think, you, your brain probably was thinking of other things even. All at the same time. How many functions are happening together in a perfect union for you to be able to do this? Probably more than we can count. And Christ's body is the same way. The body of Christ, universal. Think about it. There are Christians in every country around the globe speaking different languages, different gifts, different abilities, different cultures, and yet God brings them together in unity in his body. So when we enter Christ's body through salvation, he brings your part, if you will, to work in his body. He needs your part. And we see this in Ephesians 2 a little bit earlier before our passage. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I love that verse. I have to tell you, that is a verse for our ministry. That's why I used it. No, I'm just kidding. That is part of what God has called us to do in this idea of unity as a body. He's building us into a dwelling place. 1 Corinthians 12.18 says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. He's the one doing the arranging. 
Matthew 16, Jesus himself is talking to his disciples and he says, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice who's doing the building here. It's Jesus Christ. We each come to Christ's body with various gifts and abilities that he has given us. And he draws us in, produces the unity among us, and directs the usage of those gifts and abilities for his glory. Think about it this way. God has designed your uniqueness and our diversity for distinction, to set us apart. In love, we share a common goal, a common faith, a shared united plan, and a shared vision. We reach that goal and meet the vision through the differences he has made in each of us, all working together. Now, just as those varied different parts come together, just like in your body, we have multiple parts operating all together, right? Simultaneously. However, they all have to function by what? The brain, right? No brain, no body function. It's just not going to happen. The head is what runs the body. So too, in Christ's body, functions under the headship of Jesus Christ. We see this in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is Christ doing this. And we see the supremacy of Christ as the head here in Ephesians 1, earlier in the book of Ephesians. Far above all rule and authority, and they're talking about Jesus Christ, and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is who leads his church. And my favorite passage of Scripture, Colossians 1, 15 to 18, says he is the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, what? He might be preeminent. He is the head of the church, preeminent in all things. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, and as such, is the authority in the church. Now, he has delegated authority through pastors and elders, but the ultimate authority is in Jesus Christ himself. The unity of the body of Christ is supernatural. Get this, it's supernatural. Alistair Begg once said, Our unity is not on the basis of natural attraction, but on the basis of supernatural activity. Folks, we don't come here and join in Christ's body because we like each other. That's a byproduct. That's the work he's doing in us. We come here because Christ draws us here to build his body. Back in our passage, verse 3, 
Remember, it says eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, according to this passage, whose unity is it? It's the Spirit's. Crossway is not a country club. It's not a golf club. It's not an Elks club. This is not some association of people. Man did not create this thing called church. Yes, Pastor John was part of leading this church, this congregation. I like to think of us as a congregation, by the way, because Christ's church is across the globe, right? This is simply part of it. He led John to, Pastor John to lead us into this congregation, but he is the one who's building it. God is the one building it. Membership of Christ's body is not in terms of regular attendance in activities, but in relational adherence to the body. When we come to the Savior asking forgiveness for our sins, trusting in what Christ did on the cross, believing that God raised him from the dead, and identifying ourselves with him, we are ushered into Christ's body to function and operate with all the gifts and abilities he has given us under the headship of Jesus Christ. We're stuck with each other. I'm sorry to say it, but we are. This is the body he's giving us. This is his work. God is the one producing the unity that only he can. So if it's the Holy Spirit's unity or God's unity, we do not have to produce it. This is something that we got to get our minds wrapped around. We don't have to produce this unity. God does not hold us accountable to create unity in his body. He's doing that. He does hold us accountable to maintain it. So why does the Spirit produce unity? What's the point? What's the point of producing this unity and submission under Christ as the head? The answer to that question we can find back in the Gospel of John. Uh, again, I, I talk about my favorite passages. I, I apologize. I have a lot of them. But John 17 is probably my favorite chapter in the Bible. And the reason I say that is because it shows an intimate understanding. You, you, get, to, you get to peek into Jesus' heart. You get a small inkling of what his heart is after. And this is... Uh, to set up the context, this is intercessory prayer. This is before he goes to the cross, right? John 17, and this is what Jesus is praying. Get this. He says, I don't ask for these only, okay, speaking about the disciples, but also for those who believe, who will believe in me through their word, which would be us. So he's praying for us at this point in the chapter. What does he say? That they may all be one. Just as you, oh my goodness, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Later on, he says, the glory that, I have, that you have given me, excuse me, I have given to them. Why? That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus prayed that we would be one like he is with the Father. 
The Spirit produces unity in Christ's body as an answer to his prayer. The Spirit is answering Jesus Christ's prayer, Jesus' prayer, each and every day as he produces unity in his body. And let that sink in exactly what Jesus is asking here. You've got to let that sink in. He's asking that we would be unified in a oneness with each other and with him that is with the, the same as what he has with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And there's a oneness that God works in his body to reflect the oneness of himself. And we see that in our passage, verse 4 through 6. Back on Ephesians 4. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. The unity produced by the Spirit in answer to Christ's prayer is a reflection of Trinitarian oneness. This got me when I was studying this. This is amazing when you consider that Jesus wants us to be one and experience that unique relationship that he has with the Father. Our God is one. He can't be any more one. And he's calling us to be in that oneness. Why? We have to ask why. Why is he doing this? Why? He unifies his body in order that the world would believe that he is God. You see this in the passage again that we go to in John 17. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me. And he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And later on he says that they become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. In other words, the unity the Spirit creates in Crossway here is so unique, so different than what the world knows, it should stand out and point others to the truth of the gospel. Think about it. There's nothing else in this world that can bring such a diverse group of people, emphasis on diverse, okay, right? And have them working together regardless of personal feelings and successfully create a loving, bonding family. Nowhere else can that happen. But let's face it, it doesn't just happen. We can't just sit back and say, oh, well, that's, we're unified, we're good. We come to our second point, is that we are involved in unity maintenance. We have a part to play. God expects us to maintain the unity, to work at it. And as we've seen from the series of sermons that we've had in Genesis that Pastor Chad has so articulately given to us, that sin has entered the world and has touched everything and has ruined every relationship. You know, there's four major relationships that sin attacked and ruined. Me and God. Me and others. Me and creation. And me and me. Because now there's guilt. There's a shame, right? And when you think about your body, even our physical bodies have been affected by sin, right? Creation has been affected by sin. Our, 
What happens when just one part of our body doesn't work the way it's supposed to? I'll tell you, about six, seven years ago, I think it was, I lost hearing in my left ear. I had a tumor grow in my ear. Doctor said, oh, we can take it out and you can lose your hearing or we can leave it in and see what happens. So we left it in. I lost hearing. So when we're talking, oftentimes I'll keep asking you to repeat yourself because I've only got one ear, right? That's my excuse anyway. And I think it's kind of funny because my wife will sit on my left-hand side on the couch oftentimes and, and she's starting to lose hearing in her right ear and I'm losing hearing on my left ear. And we're, what, huh, what, yeah. So when that one part of our body doesn't necessarily work, right, we can run into all kinds of problems. I, I used to be able to eat an entire pizza without feeling it. Not anymore. I'm lucky to get two pieces in, right? Sin has affected everything. And one of the biggest frustrations that we have in this life is the effects of sin on our body, on the bodies that we are using while we're here. Right? How many times have our lives been interrupted and movements of our body have not gone the way we wished they would because some part of our body was not doing what it was designed to do? Sadly, folks, Christ's body can be dysfunctional too. That's why Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 12, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Okay? There's lots of us. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Paul goes on to say in verse 17, but as it is God arranged the members of the body and do each one of them as he chose. We're all different parts. We all have different abilities and different gifts to bring. Not all of us can lead worship. Not all of us. There, there's so many different things. So many different things that God has given you an ability to do. But notice, as part of God's body, no Christian can say, I don't belong to the body. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. You can't go it alone. God has not designed his body to be compartmentalized into hermetically sealed vacuum bags, each doing his or her own thing in his or her own strength. doesn't work that way. We are each an integral part of a greater whole, all necessary, all needed, in order for the body to function as it is designed. Please get this. The gifts and abilities that God has given you specifically regardless of how small you think they are, are necessary for the healthy functioning of Christ's body. Every one of them. Handing a bulletin, shaking a hand, smiling, giving a hug, praying. All of the parts are necessary. And he's designed you for a particular purpose to serve him in the body of Crossway Church in every way you can with the abilities and gifts that he has given you. 
Paul alludes to this in our passage this morning. We see this in back on verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Our involvement in the maintenance of the Spirit's unity within our body begins with living a life that reflects God to the world around us and to each other. The walk Paul talks about here is our daily lives. So you can look at this and look at the verse and you can say, uh, urge you to live your life. Live your life in a manner that's worthy of the calling. Go to work in a manner worthy of the calling. Go to school in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk down the street. Go to the grocery store. Whatever you're doing, do it in a manner worthy of the calling that is on your life. And as a child of God, we are called to function in accordance with the standards that God expects of His people. 1 Peter 2.15 says, encourages us to silence the critics by the way we live. That's powerful. Philippians, Paul talks about, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Hebrews 3.1 tells us that we are to share in the heavenly calling with other believers. When we are brought into His body under submission to the Lordship of the head, Jesus Christ, there is a calling placed on your life. We are different. We're sanctified. We are set apart. There's a reason for that. Think about it. When we become part of a group, we take on expectations of how that group looks or works, right? If you play on a sports team, you take on the expectations of that sports team. Right? When you're raised in a particular family, oftentimes there are expectations and we have on us as part of that family. Why? Because we represent that group. We represent those groups of people. I talk to people at work all the time. We wear a little logo from our company that I work for. And I talk to them about how, you know, it's one thing we talk about, oh, representing the company. We represent the company. You've got to be careful how you act. You represent the company. But guess what? The company is the people. I represent them. They represent me. So when they go out there, if I go to the store and I chew out the, the clerk for ringing up my groceries wrong and I'm wearing my company shirt and they see me and they say, boy, that guy's a jerk. Then they see the company. Oh, that company hires jerks. Logical conclusion. And then you walk in with the same company shirt. Guess what? You're a jerk. You haven't even said anything. That's a logical conclusion. So one of the challenges today is whose logo are you wearing? Who do you represent? As you walk up and down the streets, as you live life. For one, you represent me. Because you're part of this body. You're part of Christ's body, so you represent me. Obviously, you represent Him. When we become a Christ follower, we have the opportunity given to us to represent Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. That's our opportunity. And we only have so many years to do it. That's what the name even Christian means, little Christ, Christ follower, right? So Philippians 1, 27 tells us, 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Man, that is a tall order. That is a tall order. In this broken world, battling sin at every corner, can we really live a life that exemplifies Christ? I guarantee you, you can. Because it's not in your power. We all can. One of the most powerful demonstrations we have to this world is forgiveness of grace, of mercy. The world doesn't understand that. <laughs> Nothing more powerful than demonstrating a broken human being who's saved by the grace of God. Nothing I've done. I'm just here to point you to the one who did it. So how do we maintain the unity spirit continues to build here in Crossway? I tell you what, if it was in our own power, we couldn't do it. But God is so, so good. He has provided not only a means of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, but he has also provided the tools in which to live so that we might represent one another and him well in a broken world. Our passage shows us two elements here. Back on Ephesians 4, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I think it's interesting. He begins with humility. Someone has said, if you think you're humble, you've already lost it. Right? I think it's, he mentions humility here first because it's foundational and must be in place in order to truly serve others in the love of Christ. Christ himself demonstrated true humility through coming here on earth, living as a child, growing up, and dying on a forsaken cross. True humility. And the humility Paul is talking about is not a false abasement of yourself or thinking of yourself as nothing, because Jesus doesn't think of you that way. Healthy humility has dignity and self-respect. Jesus, when he humbled himself to wash his disciples' feet, didn't become any less God. He was simply serving those who didn't deserve it. William Temple once said, Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. It means freedom from thinking about yourself one way or the other at all. The humility which consists in being a great deal occupied about yourself and saying you are of little worth is not Christian humility. It is one form of self-occupation and a very poor and futile one at that. Do you realize that the proud cannot see God? It is one of the things that God explicitly has stated that he hates is pride because it puts a divider in between us and him. C.S. Lewis once said, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and I love this reasoning. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. Bill Foote said, the proud live with God being against them. And we see this in Daniel. 
Daniel 4, 37, give you a little backstory. Nebuchadnezzar, very proud king. He was ruling the world as far as he was concerned. God came to him and said, nope, sorry. You're not all that in a bag of chips. So I'm going to make you eat grass. And he went out and he, would add, he lived like an animal. And at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar says this. He says this in a prayer. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is coming from probably the most prideful man, well, at least at the time. And God took care of it. Humility states, as John the Baptist stated in John 3, we, he must increase, but I must decrease. And you guys have seen this logo before. I think you've seen it. He greater than I. I love that. Every time I see that. It's a mathematical equation for you there, Rick. So, He greater than I, right? More of him, less of myself. Seeing that God, you know, humility is seeing that God was not out to lunch when he put my spouse into my life. He was not out to lunch when he placed me in the family that he did. And he certainly wasn't out to lunch when he brought the people here to Crossway that he has right now for this very reason. The second part of the worthy walk here mentioned in our passage is gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness, by the way, folks. Jesus was anything but weak, yet he was gentle. Christ, get this, Christ showed gentleness when he drove the money changers out of the temple. And we're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Gentleness is being passionate about God's agenda. That's gentleness. We're going to be passionate about God's agenda. Gentleness is being aware of what God is up to and working around us. Because, oh, by the way, he's working all the time. We just need to join him. Finally, putting on patience and bearing with one another. This isn't the idea of simply putting up with one another. Now, bearing with one another in patience is looking out for others' needs. Coming alongside someone, even someone you may not see eye to eye with, and supporting them. Bearing with one another has the connotation that we all need assistance in this life. Working together in unity, lifting one another up, builds the body. Humility, gentleness, patience, kindness, goodness. Sound familiar? It's Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, or excuse me, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against saying, such things there is no law. This is the fruit of the Spirit. So not only does God produce the unity of His body through the Holy Spirit, He develops the fruit in our lives in order to maintain that unity. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us towards holiness, which he promised, by the way, he promised to make each and every one of us holy. And I don't know about you, but to God I know, he keeps his promises. And he's making me holy. I don't always like it, but he's working. And he's making you holy too. And as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us towards that holiness, our actions, the way we live our lives, begin to maintain the unity He's creating in the body. We become eager to forgive. 
We begin to think of others before ourselves. We encourage the betterment of those around us. We consider the things we think and say about others and don't give those thoughts or words time if they are not uplifting or edifying as he develops that fruit in our lives. Now, the second blessing God strengthens us with to live worthy of his calling to maintain his unity is found here back in verse 1. Again, he says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy to which you've been called. Now, whenever, whenever as readers, we see words like so that, or but, or therefore, it should make us stop, right? So the easiest way to remember this is to ask ourselves, what is the therefore, therefore, right? Because that's what Paul uses. He says, therefore, um, we should say, well, therefore what? what? Why? Most of Paul's letters are written in a very similar way. When you look at all of his writings, he starts with doctrine and he ends with duty. He starts with mapping out the why and he ends with discussing the how. Now, a lot of times people really get frustrated. They get hung up on this idea of doctrine. Oh, I don't want to have doctrine. Doctrine. Doctrine Doctrine is the solid facts based on the character of God himself. Doctrine is what gets us through the difficult times in life when things don't make sense. We turn to his word. We claim his promises, right? Guess what? That's doctrine. We claim the fact that Jesus is God and that he told us that's doctrine. We go back to the facts. God gives us doctrine to embolden us, to reassure us, and to strengthen us in our daily lives. Oftentimes, if you're ever at the bed of someone who is dying, it is doctrine that brings the reassurance. It is the facts of God's character. When everything else is all mixed up and it just doesn't make sense, we can always go to God's character because it will always be the same. Proper doctrine, the kind that Pastor Chad and Pastor John lead us in every Sunday, allows Christ followers to stand firm on the foundation of his word while embracing God in a deeper and richer relationship. You need both. All doctrine becomes legalism. Only a relationship can become soft and weak in the heat of the battle. You need both. You need doctrine in a rich, deep, abiding relationship working together. That's how God works. He gives us his truth for us to stand on, for us to hang on to. So here it is. So we have to say, so what is the therefore, therefore? Paul says, therefore, right? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. Paul wants us to know that God is for us and has given us everything in order to live a life worthy of the calling that he brings us into. We don't have to do this in our own strength. We can't. The first three chapters of Ephesians lays out all that God has done. And when we read it, it encourages us as his people to be his marks in this world. It also should encourage us in how to maintain his unity through humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. So I want to do an experiment here. And I know this is, as we would say, it's 
Nana and Papa nap time, okay, in the afternoon with our granddaughter, right? This is a perfect time to take a nap. I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes, so please don't take a nap, okay? But I want, to I want us to close our eyes. I won't because I'll be reading the list. And I'm going to read all of the characteristics, all of, the, all of what God has done for us as his body. And I want you just to immerse yourself in this, in this understanding, okay? So, so just listen to what God has done for you specifically. Okay, here we go. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's chosen us in Christ. He's predestined us to adoption as children, His children. He's freely bestowed His grace on us. He's redeemed us in Christ's blood. He's forgiven us according to His grace. He's lavished His grace on us. He's made known to us the mystery of His will. He's given us an inheritance. He's sealed us in Christ. We are given a pledge, the Holy Spirit. We're given us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him. He's given us Christ as head over the church. He's made us alive in Christ. He raises us with Christ in the heavenlies. He shows us kindness through His grace. He, we are saved by His grace through faith. He's given the gift of salvation. We are His workmanship created in Christ. We are brought near to Him. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been destroyed, praise God. He's given us peace. He's reconciled us into one body. He's given us access to the Father through Christ. He's made citizens and we are made citizens and members of God's house. We are built into the foundation of God's very house. We are being unified and built together. He gives us boldness and confidence of faith. We are strengthened with His power. We come to know the extent of His love. And we are filled with all fullness. And He gives us love, the perfect bond of unity. I say amen. This is what God has done for us. He's gone to great lengths. When we embrace this doctrine and allow it to shape our lives, how can we not respond by working for His unity? How can we not demonstrate His lavish grace towards others by putting aside hurtful opinions, pride, and selfishness? Starting in His body right here. The amazing thing, God does not set his bar of holiness and expect us to meet it in our power. He knows we can't. There's no way we can. He calls us to live differently by allowing him to work through us, through the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's what he's calling us to do. He doesn't expect you to have a perfect relationship with everybody in the church. Never going to happen. Not in our strength. But it will in His. Because He offers the grace. He offers the mercy. He shows us how to put those tools into place. He calls us to live differently by laying down our own selfish ambitions and take up His view of others and the world around us. And He gives us everything we need to do it. So here's our conclusion. And I always challenge our Wednesday night group. I try to give them a weekly challenge. So Pat, hang in there. We're going to give a challenge here. Here's our challenge for the week, okay? 
Make the decision to allow God to reign completely in your lives. Allow His Holy Spirit to temper our tongues and guide our thoughts. And show mercy and grace, even if you don't think others deserve it. And choose to humbly treat others with gentleness, being patient, bearing with them, even, or should I say, especially if, you don't think they deserve it. And ask God how you can be a fully functional part of His working body right here or whatever church you attend. How can you be a part of His fully functional body? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are amazing. Oh Lord, even the expectations You have for us, You bring us through and give us the strength to follow through. We thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for Your love. And we pray, Lord, in some small way that You would work in our hearts to join us in unity so that we might demonstrate Your Gospel, the fact that You are God and King to this world around us this week. In Jesus' holy and precious name, Amen.